0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and co-hosting with me today is the one and only Kelsey Buller. Kelsey, welcome back to the show. Hi,
1: Virginia. It is great to be back.
0: It's always good to have you on, Kelsey. Well, Lauren, she is out this week, but Lauren and I spoke a little bit at the top of last week's show about the Super Bowl, and I hope that you all had the chance to watch it over the weekend because not only was it a really eventful game, but the commercials were also pretty on point this year. There were probably more celebrity appearances in commercials this year than I think I've ever seen. There were also a lot of commercials that really aimed at making a powerful statement, many of them making a political point. Uh, And one of those commercials was from Jeep. So let's take just a minute to listen to that Jeep commercial um, and then we're going to get into some of the controversy around it.
2: There's a chapel in Kansas, standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red red and blue between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us and we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. So we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert. And we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope. On the road up ahead.
0: So, Kelsey, I actually liked this commercial. I, I like the fact that it talked about a chapel and it had images of that chapel. It had images of crosses. I thought the tone of it was, you know, it was nice to see people talking about unity, since I think that is something that as a nation we're really seeking and desiring right now. But I know that you were not a fan of this commercial. So let me know what what were the things that you were like, um, mm,
1: not a fan of that. Well, Virginia, let me start out by asking you, do you think Jeep would have produced this same commercial about unity had former president Trump won the election? Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> that is my issue. So the corporations want and the media want unity when Republicans lose and Democrats win, <laughs> but you know, if Republicans win then it's all about Stopping this train. And it's not about unity. It's about standing up to Republicans and so forth. And that's my huge issue with it. I also thought whoever produced this ad has no idea how D.C. works, um, because unity is a lot more difficult to achieve than, um, you know, this ad portrays. President Joe Biden has campaigned on unity, and we have not seen that reflected in any piece of his legislative, or shall I say, executive agenda. Um, I also had an issue with the casting of it. Bruce Springsteen is not a centrist or a moderate in any fashion. He's a protagonist who has mocked conservatives and insulted Trump. Would it have been so hard to cast an actual moderate in this ad if they really wanted it to be an ad about finding the middle ground, like maybe not cast someone who has openly disparaged former President Trump and those who have voted for him. The last point, you know, I want to make is I appreciated the visuals. It, It was a beautiful ad and it like totally pulled at my heartstrings. I guess i'm just too politically aware of the messaging and i just had no tolerance for it given the state of uh the country and the media right now um but you know in in choosing to uh portray a church as the place to find unity well on that front my mind immediately went to all the different ways the left has embarked on a war against religious freedom in this country. In that sense, churches do not symbolize unity to me. They remind me of, you know, the attack on nuns, uh, the attack on adoption agencies and so forth. So (laughs) there are a lot of reasons (laughs) this ad totally missed the mark for me. And I say that as someone who you know, when I was younger, I owned a Jeep Wrangler. I love Jeeps. I, my family still has that Jeep Wrangler um, sitting at our home in Connecticut. And I'm trying to preserve it to maybe pass it on to my <laughs> da- daughter one day because I just love the cars. I just think it's always a, always a mistake when corporations uh, try to uh, try to send a message about politics because it is just so hard to get right.
0: Yeah, no, it is. And Kelsey, those are those are good points. I think so much of what you said kind of comes down to uh, the issue of like they were giving lip service to these ideas uh, that, (laughs) um, you know, so many people on on the right have been saying for so long, we need we need unity you know, let's get around these ideas where we do agree uh, and then to sort of see the left saying, okay, we can do that now, now that things are politically right for us. um, Right. Yeah. I can definitely see that that is, for sure, frustration. But um, for all of our listeners, if you had a commercial that either pushed your buttons or that you really loved, tweet at us, let us know. We'll be talking about another commercial from the Super Bowl a little bit later in the show. But we do have an awesome show planned for you all today. I think it's one that is super encouraging. So I'm actually very, very excited for what we have up on today's Problematic Women We Chat with Emily Stimson Chapman, an author, a freelance writer wife and a mom of two soon to be three adopted children. Emily shares her personal story of getting married late in life, learning to let go of expectations that we hold for our lives and trusting God all along the way. Plus, President Biden has announced plans for America to rejoin the UN Human Rights Council. Kelsey and I break down what you need to know. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: Each week here on problematic women we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so called feminist left. If you are a
0: problematic woman or maybe just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as always, please encourage others to subscribe. It makes such a huge difference.
1: All right, let's get to it.
0: I am joined by Emily Stimson Chapman. Emily is the author of multiple books, a freelance writer for a number of publications, a wife and a mom of two soon to be three adopted children. Emily, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, it's so great to be here and talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm so excited just to to talk with you about your journey of adoption, of getting married late in life, your career as a writer. It's so fun just to kind of get to dive in and chat about someone's life and their story. (laughs) Uh, But I want to begin by first asking you to share a little bit about your faith, because as I've researched your story, the books that you've written, your bio, it's so evident that your faith really is the thing that drives you, which I think is just absolutely absolutely beautiful. So could you just talk a little bit about your faith and how that does influence the choices that you have make and that you do make in the way that
3: you live your life? Yeah. Uh, you know, I always say that uh, Jesus is my boss. So <laughs> um, I work for him. I'm like his, I don't know, I'm his scribe. I i don't know. I'm his copywriter. I'm Jesus's copywriter. Uh, but it, and he really chose, he's, he's, he, the, my faith has direct. it's, he chose everything in life. Uh, so I uh, grew up Catholic, but not deeply faithful, didn't know my faith, didn't uh, didn't really think about it, went to college and met a very cute Protestant boy who put some <laughs> tough questions to me that I didn't have the answers for. And I always say I didn't want to have the answers because I was, <laughs> I was so much more interested in uh, making the boy happy than thinking through things on my own. So I ended up... Uh, I did end up uh, really considering, really thinking through the claims of Jesus Christ, though, and I gave my heart and my life to Jesus, and sort of set the Catholic question aside. Uh, but when I was back in Washington, working at the Heritage Foundation, I had a super smart Catholic co-worker who put some more questions to me, and that ended up me leading me to come back into the Catholic Church. but. Uh, for me it's all just been one big journey where I'm deeply grateful for my time with my Protestant friends and how I learned to walk with Jesus and what a relationship with Jesus looked like and then I'm grateful for my time uh, my life sense in the church and all of the the riches and the tradition and the formation that I've gotten through that but but yeah it, it informs everything I mean I my Faith informs how I write, it informs how I decorate my home, it, it informs how I raise my children, it informs how I cook, how I eat. Uh, there is, my husband always says that faith is like honey, it gets all over everything. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, that's definitely been true for my life. Mm,
0: that's such a good analogy. I love that. And like, that should be our goal, right? That our faith does cover every aspect of our life. Yes, the way that we live. Sticky, like
3: so sticky everywhere. Like you can't get away from it. You're like, oh, here it is again. And here it is again. <laughs>
0: I love that. Well, I do want to talk about some of those books that you've written. You've written
3: um, eight, is that correct? Either authored or co-authored eight? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the point I've lost track. I, I write because I write the books, and then I write things that are book length studies, and yeah. So I I write a lot. That's what I do. Oh,
0: I love it. Well, mm-hmm. one of the books that I want to chat with you about uh, you published in 2012, and that is the Catholic Girls Survival Guide. For the single years. So I, I'm a single woman. So I really appreciate hearing those stories of how women have just figured out how to journey through singleness with a lot of joy, with purpose. So you are married now, but you did get married late in life. So talk a little bit about your journey of singleness and why you actually chose to write a whole book about being single.
3: Yeah, I don't. I think chose is not the <laughs> word I would use. Like hounded by God and my publishers to write it. I mean, who who wants to write a book about being single when you're 35, right? Like that is yeah. no girl's aspiration in life. Um, I I always assumed I would marry in my 20s, like my parents did. Uh, I wanted I wanted four or five kids. I wanted uh, you know when I was younger, and my 20s came and went, and that that didn't happen. And so then I found myself in my 30s wanting a larger family by that point. I was like, oh, I want lots of kids. And um, God just had other things for me to do. And the person he had for me to marry was not married yet. So, uh, but yeah, that was it was really, really tough because on one hand, I was blessed with work I loved. I had wonderful friends who loved me as part of their family. I had their kids. I had my family. Uh, I had as good of a single life as anyone could ask for but in my heart was the conviction that I was I was made to give myself in a deeper way to a husband to children uh, and so there was always this tension of um, being happy and grateful for the life I had but also longing for more and struggling for more and not understanding why I wasn't getting the thing that I felt like I was made for which was to be a wife and a mother uh, so that you know I I'm grateful for all that time when I look back on it because it it really forced me to look at Jesus's face on Calvary and how he died for people who didn't love him back. like He loved us even when, when we weren't loving him. And in the longing for marriage, in the longing for what I didn't have, I just got to sit with Jesus on Calvary and um, see his love for us. And so my faith grew in that time. I became more patient. I became more gentle. Um, by the time I finally did get married, a lot of the rough edges had been rubbed off. And I'm definitely a better wife and mother than I would have been if I'd married 15 years ago. More tired. My knees hurt. My back hurts Aww. after my two-and-a-half-year-old sleeping on me all last night. Um, but, but no, it, it was a really fruitful time for me, both spiritually and professionally, you know, so that now I'm able to work from home and do my writing with my boys around. Um, And I wouldn't have necessarily been able to do that if I had gotten married 20 years ago. So I've just come to trust in in God's providence and God's wisdom. And he, you know, all those years I was praying for a husband and baby, I'm so glad he didn't answer those prayers then because I wouldn't have the husband I have now and I wouldn't have the children I have now. Um, And yeah, I just think God, God knows all the prayers we're going to pray throughout our entire life. And he knows which prayers we ultimately want answered. Yeah. So I'm glad he, he did not answer the prayers of my 20s and early 30s and instead answered the prayers of my, myself later on in life.
0: Well, I want to um, chat a little bit. You, I wonder if you remember this. Two years ago, this is going way back. Instagram posts resurface. A friend of mine sent me something that you wrote on Instagram in February of uh, 2019, and you talked about how your life, like you said, like it looks different than what you had pictured, but still, like you're so grateful for what it is now. So talk a little bit of kind of that wrestle within yourself of getting to that place of being okay with like, okay, um, you know, I am in my 30s and my life does not look like what I pictured it. Uh, How do I continue moving forward with joy? And then uh, how do I also, okay, now that, you know, you are married, how do you stay in that place of thankfulness and recognize like, okay, this is for this season and it's okay that this didn't come sooner?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I I've talked about how I thought by the time I was, I'm you know, I'm 45 now, so I thought by the time I was 45, I'd have seven or eight kids, maybe one of them would be starting college. I would have homeschooled them. I always thought I would have girls. I just I'm pretty girly, and little girls love me, so I think everyone <laughs> assumed that God would just send girls my way, uh, and that was my expectation for my life, and it has never looked like I expected it to look. Like not one second has turned out like I expected. And there were moments where that was really hard and crushing and confusing because I didn't understand why other people were getting the things that they expected and they wanted and I wasn't. Um, But it comes back to that relationship with Jesus. Uh, The more time I spent with Jesus, the more I got to know him, the more I looked at how, he was bringing blessings in seasons of unanswered prayers times where i was struggling and not happy with my life but he was blessing me in so many ways i learned to trust him and trust that he knew better than i knew you know he, his plan was better than mine and even when i didn't feel like that i would go back to that intellectual assertion and really cling to that and look at the blessings that had come from difficult seasons. And so I just kept walking forward and trying to seek his will. And I think that's where the supernatural virtue of hope comes in. Um, We often talk about hope, like God is a genie. He's going to give us all the wishes and desires of our heart. And having hope means thinking that God is going to give us what we want, which is really presumptuous to think that the God of the universe is there to grant our every wish. Um, And so the idea of supernatural hope is knowing that it's not thinking God is going to give me what I want, but that God is going to give me what I need and what I need is him. It's placing our heart, not in the things of the world, but in heaven and trusting that going along with God and his plan and trusting him and following his ways and not compromising our beliefs or our standards or our morals, that ultimately is the better decision because that is what is going to get us to get us to him. And so, trust and hope, and really just trying not to think too much about what I didn't have and what I and looking at what I did have. Uh, God is always blessing us in some way. It may not be the blessings we asked for. It may not be the blessings we thought we needed or that we thought we wanted. But there is there are blessings in every day for everyone. And so for me, sometimes that was like. Coffee. Like, okay, thank you, God, for coffee. (laughs) I may not have a baby, but I have coffee right now. So that's good, Lord. All right, we're we're good with that. Um, And other times, it's, you know, it's the riches of friendships and the opportunities he was giving me. And so just cultivating a spirit of gratitude for what I did have, and not a spirit of resentment for what I didn't have, um, kept me just moving forward and trusting that God does know what he's doing. So. Mm.
0: And that takes work, that like cultivating that spirit of gratitude. I think that it's so beautiful and it takes such uh, intentionality. But when you do it, it's like, oh, my goodness, like all of a sudden the glass is half full in every situation in life and nothing has necessarily changed. It's just that taking the time to recognize, like you say, what you have, even if that's just coffee.
3: <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you you have to be the grown-up. <laughs> yeah. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> right now. He's led by his emotions. You know, everything is, if he doesn't have the right cup, it's tears and drama <laughs> and everything is so hard. And we can be like that, even when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, if we don't check ourselves. You know, we have to be the grown-ups. We have to use our reason we have, to, um, we have to use our heads and talk to ourselves and say, okay, I know this is hard. I know this hurts, but let's think through this. And when we do that and we go back to what we know, uh, it becomes a lot easier to be in the present and be grateful for the present. So
0: you are married now. Tell us a little bit about how you and your
3: husband met. <laughs> you don't have long enough for that. Um, <laughs> we, we actually met when I was... 30 and he was 37 and we met through we met through catholic match uh but we both had gone to franciscan university of steubenville we both had lots of mutual friends in common so it it kind of felt like we met through our friends even though we ended up meeting on meeting through the website uh i was smitten he was brilliant and funny and faithful and gorgeous and i was like oh Yes, you, of course. But he didn't have that same reaction. Uh, He he was like, oh, you're nice. I don't know. And so we did the ambiguous friend thing for a very long time. It was very dramatic. And it was sort of like a, I don't know, a telenovela. It was like a Spanish soap opera. Um, But eventually he came to his senses and realized (laughs) that he was very much in love with me and needed to marry me very quickly. And so uh, we started dating in 2015, we're engaged within the year and married within five months. So we've been married five years this summer. So I was 41 when we got married and he uh, was about to turn
4: 48.
0: Mm, so wonderful. I love it. And I love that Like everyone's story is so different and so unique. And yeah, it's just great to hear about kind of the different stories that people have. Uh, but it is, it's almost Valentine's day or as uh, many women call it singles awareness day. <laughs> so <laughs> for all of our listeners who have that desire to be married, but they are still single, what would you say to them to encourage them?
3: I would just, I mean, don't give up hope, and I mean, natural hope as much as supernatural hope. Um, I have seen one of the blessings that came from writing the book about being single was everyone wanted to tell me their story about their friend or their aunt or their mother or their grandmother who married, you know, in their late 30s or their 40s or their 50s or their 60s. Um, I had one couple. I was I was doing a television show about this and on. Uh, on EWTN, and a couple in the audience came up to me afterwards who were 82 and were engaged to be married. <laughs> so, wow! Yeah, I know. Uh, so there's there are so many people who are getting married at different seasons in life and different ages in life, and you don't. It's not a lesser marriage because it happens later. It's different. Uh, you know, it was a sad thing for me the day I realized like, Oh, I'm never going to be the young bride. Like I'm not going to be the young mom. That ship has, has sailed. Um, but I wouldn't trade one minute of my marriage with my husband now for marrying someone else earlier. Uh, they're so, God brings the right person into your life at the right time. And I'm a better wife and our marriage is a better marriage for the age we met and the things that we had been through. And we're, We're better parents because of being a little bit older. We're more tired. Our joints hurt more. Um, But there's different blessings in different seasons. And so, again, it's like you have to focus on the blessings of the moment, what God is giving you right now and what God is not giving you. Um, And, like, there's no expiration date on a vocation to marriage other than death. By the time you've died. Like, okay, (laughs) there will be no marrying or not marrying in heaven. Um, But until then, you just don't know what God is going to do or how he's going to be using you or bringing different people into your life. And healing is happening all the time. And growth is happening all the time and transformation. And so um, you just have to let God surprise you and Mm. trust that whatever he does, if you were trying to follow his will, is going to be for the best.
0: So good. Well, obviously, one of those blessings of this season has been getting to be a mom. You've mentioned your kids. Uh, you have two children that you've adopted. You're in the process of trying to adopt a third. Why did you and your husband decide that adoption was uh, was a path that you all wanted to walk down?
3: Uh, you know, it's a really natural path for us. We felt What I have lots of friends who have adopted or who are adopted. One of my um, close friends is a birth mom. She placed her daughter for adoption 19 years ago. So adoption was a very familiar thing for me. And although I know it's different than giving birth to babies, I know that God gives us the children he wants us to raise through lots of different doors and windows. And Chris and I felt when we were saying yes to marriage, we were we were saying yes to life, and we were going to be open to life however God wanted to give that to us, whether it was whether I got pregnant, whether we never conceived and never adopted and just were welcoming our friends and their children or people who needed a place to belong into our home, um, or wh- whether it was through adoption. So when we first got married, we thought I would be able to get pregnant. I had lots of friends in their early 40s, late 30s who were getting pregnant. Doctors thought it wouldn't be an issue, um, but that didn't happen. And so we're like, all right, let's, (laughs) no (laughs) babies coming that way. We don't have a lot of time to waste here. So (laughs) let's think about adoption. And as soon as we just began thinking about adoption, it was like every possible door that could, needed to be open, just blew open. A huge gust of wind went through, went through our life and we had, uh, we we weren't even ready to begin the process, and someone asked us if we would be willing to adopt our our son Toby, who wow. was uh, in utero at that point. So, yes, yeah, so we dumped jumped in, and then after a year and a half, really felt like God, uh, like our family wasn't complete, like there was somebody missing from our family, and we began that process again right before COVID started, and adopted our second son. Beckett in July. that He was uh, what they call a stork drop. So we had really no warning. Um, we were sitting on the porch on four o'clock, four o'clock on a Monday afternoon. And our adoption consultant called us up and said, hey, there's a baby in Dallas that needs a mom and dad. He's yours if you want to come down. And we're like, okay, we'll be. We were on the road to Texas two hours later. Um, and then we were in the NICU with him for a month and got home. And within six days, of coming home we my husband walked into the kitchen he had just gotten off the phone with the adoption attorney we had uh worked with for toby's adoption and he told us that toby's birth parents were pregnant again and um they planned to abort unless we wanted the baby and so we're like oh no we're we're there we want the baby we we, no 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 we, we want the baby uh so that's again where i think once you say yes to god and if it's his will, when he's ready to move, he moves. And it's it becomes very clear what path he wants you going down. Because, again, all we did was say yes to adoption. And suddenly we've got our third baby coming in. Two and a half years, so Mm. uh, which I think when you're forty, but when you have those three babies between forty three and forty five, I think they count as four children each. (laughs) So I think we're we're technically having our twelfth child (laughs) in a couple of months. Um, But no, it's it's a blessing and it's hard. And adoption is different. And there's so much sorrow involved in it. Um, You know, it's a hard thing to have your motherhood made possible by another woman's sacrifice and sorrow. Mm. Uh, you know that there's going to be different issues you're working through with your children. I mean, all all kids come with issues, so this adoption comes with certain issues. It's not an easy thing, but it can be a beautiful thing. And we, I would, I would carry the cross of infertility and prolonged sickness all around the world and back again ten times over for my boys. So mm. it's um, they have made every step of the journey worth it.
0: Mm. Do you feel like? your, your experience adopting and now being a mom has impacted
3: your view of God? Uh, it has, it really has in so <laughs> many ways. Um, it, I, I'm const. it's one of the things I do on, on Instagram, like I, everywhere else I have to do the writing. Usually people are telling me what I have to write about, but on Instagram, I get to work through just sort of the depths of understanding I'm coming to through motherhood about, about, God and how much he loves us. Um, I mean, adoption, adoption is a sign of of God's relationship with us. You know, we believe that God works through through physical realities to teach us about spiritual realities. And so that's true of marriage, that's true of family, it's true of, I don't, you know, it's it's true of nature, and it's true of adoption, because we are all adopted children of God um, when we're baptized into his family. And so seeing the love that I have for my sons and how total and complete it is has helped me understand more, more truly the love that God has for us, how it's not based upon what we do or what we accomplish or what, you know, our failures, but there's just this incredible love for us in our existence. Um, and I have that for my sons and I know that that comes from somewhere and I believe it comes from God. Our son Beckett is black and I think our love for, for him and our new love for, you know, our new love for his culture and his heritage and taking that on as our own, which, you know, you do in marriage. Like so if an Irish person marries an Italian person, like suddenly you find you got a whole lot of Italian in your family. Like you start living, there's it there becomes a deep appreciation for your spouse's culture. Um, God, does, does that, God does that with us, you know, he took on our nature so that we could take on his nature. Um, And so coming to study the black American experience more and love the, the rich contributions they've made to the, to American culture and have a, a deeper appreciation for that and it's not like oh we want this in our house because beckett is here but beckett is ours and so now this is ours mm-hmm. and i think when i look at the state of racial tension in the united states right now and i wish more people could see like how much we belong to each other in america mm-hmm. like it's, you know we we have assimilated so much of every culture that has come to us and we are all we're all a product of all those cultures. And I think if people could see the ties that bind us, not just based on culture, but on being children of God, of sharing human nature, um, of own, realizing we all belong to each other, yeah. that there would be a lot more peace. And adoption has definitely been a window for into that for me.
0: Mm, that's so powerful. It It's simple, but it's incredibly profound um, and just so beautiful to hear about your adoption story. It's something that we just really love to talk about on this show and highlight because it's uh, it's so important to that that value of, of life and that foundation of family. Um, just really, really really beautiful. I, I do want to take a second and just loop back and talk about one of your other books. You've mentioned cooking earlier and that uh, that's something that you really enjoy. And you actually uh, wrote a cookbook in 2016 called The Catholic Table, Finding Joy Where Food and Faith Meet. And I, I really love your perspective on food. I was reading a little bit about it earlier on your blog. Could you just share a little bit about that perspective on, on food and hosting and cooking?
3: Sure. And I'm going to I'll correct you a little bit. So I, I did something confusing. In 2016, I wrote a book about food, which is the Catholic table. Um, but it's more the theology of food mm-hmm. and my story of my recovery from uh, years of eating disorders and sort of the Catholic vision of, of what food is and how it's a sign of God's love and a foretaste of the Eucharist. Then in 2020, oh, I wrote goodness. a cookbook called Around the Catholic Table, and that was written as a fundraiser for our adoption for Beckett. So, oh, good. Um, well, tell me, yeah. tell me a little, <laughs> little bit about those then. <laughs> Yeah, so it's really they go together. So the the Catholic Table, the book, in 2016, Gives you this rich understanding of the sacramentality of food and how food can lead us closer to God and closer to one another, and what it means to you know what the theological meaning of hospitality and welcoming people is. Then, around the Catholic table, it gives you 77, I think, recipes uh, that are made for hosting, like super easy, entertaining. They feed a crowd. I'm always feeding big families, and so that. They're designed for that. And that also includes essays on practical aspects of hospitality, like how not to worry about your house when you're having people over or what to cook for people who are bringing lots of kids over to your house. Uh, basically, my advice is don't just have cheese and crackers because <laughs> kids never eat when they're around other kids and they're not at home. Um but just really simple, easy tips on hospitality and recipes. So they, the one that gives you the theology, the other gives you a way to practically apply the theology and live it in your home.
0: I love it. So good. Well, before we let you go, uh, we love to ask all of our first time guests on the show this question. And that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? No right or wrong answer. We get all sorts of different and unique answers to this question.
3: I think the word feminist has become a bad metaphor because it's so loaded with different agendas that when you use the word, it's hard for people. They don't know what you always mean. They're like, "Well, what do you mean? You mean you hate men? You mean you support the equal? You support equal pay? Do you like? Do you like Jean Paul Too? And you're talking about the feminine genius? It's a really bad word at this point because people don't know what you're talking about." Um, so it's not a word that I use to apply to myself. I like to talk about, um, the feminine genius and allowing the feminine genius to flourish in the world and being free to become the person God made you to be. So those would be phrases that I would probably use and stay away from feminist.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Because I think it's a bad metaphor. Yeah,
0: yeah, I you know that the term does certainly come with a lot of uh, a lot of different kind of instantly emotions that people have and opinions. <laughs> and
3: so, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't communicate necessarily what you're trying to communicate. And so I'm a writer. So I'm obsessed with am I communicating this properly? <laughs> is this a good word for me to use? Is it going to or is it just going to make people stop listening to me because they think I'm saying something I'm not? Um, and so, yeah, that's how I feel about the word.
0: Well, and speaking of you being a writer, tell our listeners how they can find your books, uh, follow your writing, uh, and also follow you on Instagram. Because now that I'm following you on Instagram, I feel like I'm always so encouraged by the things that you post. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, Instagram is, uh, I am I am alone in the house with two boys most of the day. So Instagram is my connection to the outside world. So I love Instagram. I love, love Instagram. Um, Instagram is great. I have a blog called the Catholic table, but it never, I treat Instagram like a blog at this point. Uh, books are all on Amazon. Um, I've published both through, uh, Emmaus Red Press and Doubleday. So you can find some of my books on their websites. Um, and I've got a new book that is going off to the publishers in 10 days, God willing. Um, and if my computer stops breaking down, So hopefully there will be a new book come summer. The publishers wanted to release it like three weeks after we brought our new baby home. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Men, men who are arranging the marketing of these things, that's not what a woman can do. So yeah, there's some room for a little feminism there where you're like, could we all think through this a little more clearly? So probably in June, um, a new book will come out that is called Dear Emily, Letters to Myself from the End of the World.
0: Oh wow! Tell me just a little bit more about the concept of that because I'm really intrigued by that title. <laughs> uh,
3: well, I was supposed to be writing a different book, but it was May and everything was starting to fall apart. Uh, between you know, we we saw the tragedy of the George Floyd murders and the reactions to that. They're just the politics as we were getting ready for the election, and I saw people really struggling to hold on to their faith, to not despair, to figure out how they were supposed to fight injustice but without committing injustice in the process. And I was like, you know, I could see myself 20 years ago having a lot of these struggles. So what advice would I give to myself in 2000? What advice would I give to 25-year-old Emily about how how to understand what God is asking of us, how to love, how to be a mom, how to use social media, how to fight injustice, how to cope with scandal in the church, how to pursue holiness. And so that's what it is. It's like 45 short letters to myself just trying to give the wisdom that I've acquired and that is keeping me sane right now when the rest of the world often seems to be falling apart.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so priceless. I feel like all of us probably wish that, um, looking back, that, yeah, are like, Twenty-five-year-old self could have had
3: letters. <laughs> 45 year old self <laughs> it would have been so much easier. It would so have easier. much easier. <laughs> yes, if I could have just skipped all of the tough stuff of learning the lessons, and then like, oh yeah, right, okay, I won't do that. Good, good, good thought, Emily. So that's what that's what the new book is. Uh,
0: it's really so- about
3: spiritual authority.
0: That's so good. Well, we will be sure to put a link in the show notes um, for where you can find all those books on Amazon. Um, And then, yes, please be sure to follow Emily on Instagram at Emily Stimson Chapman. And Emily, thank you so much for your time. We just really appreciate you coming on the show.
3: Virginia, it was great talking to you.
0: Now stay tuned because up next, Kelsey and I will be breaking down the Biden administration's announcement that the US will be rejoining the UN Human Rights Council. But first, I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on what the Daily Signal is covering. The Daily Signal has a very active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our digital team is constantly posting new stories, reels, clips from interviews, videos all across our social media platforms. So these be sure that you like and follow The Daily Signal on social media so that you can stay up with all of the latest content. The Biden administration announced its plans to rejoin the UN Human Rights Council only three years after the U.S. withdrew from the organization under former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley. Haley has accused the council of covering for dictators and being biased against Israel. Uh, In response to the recent announcement, she said that it's really sad to see the Biden administration give it legitimacy once again. Former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, she spoke at the Heritage Foundation in 2018 and explained the original intent and mission of the Human Rights Council, but how it's really failed to continue to meet uh, and honor those aims, and why the U.S. under President Trump made that choice to leave the council. So let's just take a listen to a portion of what Haley had to say when she visited the Heritage Foundation.
4: The United States was instrumental in creating the United Nations Human Rights Commission, precisely because we believe in the inherent dignity of all women and men. It was meant to be, in the words of its first chairman, Eleanor Roosevelt, quote, a place of conscience. When it has served this function, the Human Rights Council, as it is now known, has provided a voice for the voiceless. It has brought the injustice suffered suffered by political prisoners to international attention. It has put a spotlight on crimes committed by Syria's Assad and the Kim dictatorship in North Korea but these have been the exceptions, not the rule. More often, the Human Rights Council has provided cover, not condemnation, for the world's most inhumane regimes. It has been a bully pulpit for human rights violators. And the Human Rights Council has been not a place of conscience, but a place of politics. It has focused its attention unfairly, and relentlessly on Israel. Meanwhile, it has ignored the misery inflicted by regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and China.
0: Kelsey, your thoughts on America's decision to rejoin the UN Human Rights Council?
1: So the Biden administration claims that President Trump's decision in 2018, which really, you know, we have to give credit to Nikki Haley for, Um, to pull the United States out of the UN Human Rights Council left a vacuum that has been filled by authoritarian countries. Uh, The problem with this argument is that the UN Human Rights Council is filled with authoritarian countries right now who consistently violate the human rights of its own citizens, or at least turn a blind eye uh, to these types of abuses and enable them. Uh, you know, we have forms of slavery that still exist in countries like Mali and Niger. Uh, those are two members of the UN Human Rights Council. We have people smugglers in Libya who auction off black Africans. 14 of the 18 countries of the Global Slavery Index ranks as uh, worst in the world at fighting slavery are African Um, And, you know, so many of these countries are allowed to be a part of uh, the Human Rights Council. And what does the Human Rights Council do, um, you know, in allowing its, you know, members to, I guess, you know, vote on different sort of uh, measures condemning uh, human rights abuses? Well, over 50 percent of the condemnatory resolutions that passed by the council have focused on Israel. So there is an extreme bias against Israel going on here. This is something uh, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley discussed about often, um, in addition to the ways that it covers for dictators. Um, You know, we know that China is not currently a member, but it has been empowered and legitimized in different ways by the UN Human Rights Council and experts predict that uh, China will have a role there, despite the many human rights abuses that we know are ongoing in that country. Um, You know, what's happening to the Uyghurs is just horrific. There was a recent story I was reading about just last week that was detailing even more abuses, even worse than we thought, um, that's going on inside these quote-unquote re-education camps. What is the UN Human Rights Council good for if it can't stand up and put an end to these types of abuses. And so Nikki Haley was totally right in um, pulling the US out of this, because as she says, it really does cover for and legitimize dictators. Well, and I know
0: that one of the arguments for, you know, but we should rejoin it is, well, you know, we have to be in it in order to try and fix it and, you know, move the ball in the right direction. But really that that didn't stop like the U.S. pulled out as a way of saying very clearly and directly, Human Rights Council, you are not doing what you were created to do. You're failing on multiple fronts. So, you know, we're not going to essentially endorse your actions and your behavior, um, because you're not living up uh, to the standard that you were created to live up to. But the work to actually reform that council and push it in the right direction, the U.S. never stopped doing that. We have continued to really, you know, ask for there to be reforms made and call on the UN to make those reforms. So we can do that work of really advocating for there to be you know, proper standards and, and requirements uh, met in order for countries to join that Human Rights Council, whether we're in it or not. Uh, and I think it's, it's definitely really disappointing to see the Biden administration, I think, uh, without a lot, it, it seems like without a lot of thought, uh, just sort of saying, okay, diplomatically, this looks good, this looks nice, so we'll rejoin it
1: right it, you know despite passing so many condemnatory resolutions against israel one of the united states most important allies in the middle east and in the world the human rights council has never passed a condemnatory resolution on china cuba russia or saudi arabia despite all their terrible records on religious persecution, punishment of political dissent, hostility to freedom of the press, and unequal rights for women. And so I would really ask the Biden administration, if you're going to rejoin it, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to ensure that This body is actually used for good and not used to cover up and and legitimize bad actors and turn a blind eye to human rights abuses that the United States should be at the forefront of calling out. Nikki Haley did just that. After pulling the United States out of the Human Rights Council, she continued to raise awareness about these abuses going on in different countries. She did not need the Human Rights Council to do that. (laughs) In fact, the Human Rights Council probably makes it more difficult because you have to get all of these countries to agree to condemn this versus the United States, just using our powers as the, the leader of the free world to raise attention about these abuses And condemn them. Uh, So, you know, how the Biden administration is going to, you know, make this, uh, the Human Rights Council, any different in that regard, I'm curious to see. But this is certainly an issue that we should be calling out because, on its face, you know, when I was in college, I probably would have thought it was a terrible thing that the Trump administration pulled out of the Human Rights Council because it sounds like such a great thing. Why wouldn't we want to be a part of it? But as soon as you take the time to learn about uh, what this council has actually done or, you know, in many cases, not done, uh, you realize it is absolutely the right move to pull out of it and stand up and say, you know, if we really stand for human rights, this council needs to do far better before the United States will put our name on it. Well, we know that they've also
0: been um, major advocates for abortion and funding abortions under COVID-19, who are using COVID relief funding. They've actually taken some of that money to promote abortions. The UN Human Rights Council on July 17th, they advanced a resolution under the topic of ending discrimination against women and girls. And it made this radical claim that sexual and reproductive health services, including safe abortions, are an essential health service in the context of the pandemic. Um, So yeah, really, really radical. It's like they're, they're choosing to ignore the blatant human rights abuses that are taking place in these countries that are sitting at the table, that have a seat at the table. um, And then they're giving, they're giving support. They're giving funding to issues like abortion. Um, So Kelsey, I think yeah, you said it very, very well. It's definitely sad to see the Biden administration, really rejoining this council. Um, You know, I I like to look on the bright side. I like to be an optimistic person and think, well, you know, maybe we'll see some positive movement forward, but I probably am not going to hold my breath on that one. If you want to learn more about this topic, the Daily Signal has written a lot of great pieces on this. Also check out the Heritage Foundation website um, so that you can stay informed on what's going on on this critical issue. Now stay tuned because up next, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you wanna hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, Visit heritage.org
1: slash events. Now it is that time once again to crown our problematic woman of the week. And this week, the crown goes to the one and only Dolly Parton.
0: Kelsey, you wrote a great piece for The Daily Signal on Tuesday discussing the Super Bowl ad that Dolly Parton, she wrote a song for, kind of in collaboration with the web platform Squarespace. And the far left had a very negative reaction to Dolly's song and the message that the Squarespace commercial was promoting. So Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit about the commercial and why on earth it's receiving criticism?
1: Yes, this is just a ridiculous story. After debuting her first ever Super Bowl ad where she flips the lyrics to her iconic song from 9 to 5 to 5 to 9, the country music superstar came under fire for being a capitalist who celebrates hard work and the pursuit of the American dream. Oh, the horror. I know. (laughs) So. Parton's ad was produced by Squarespace, um, which is promoting itself as a way for people to build and design their own websites to help make their five to nine job their full time. So that means, you know, the job you're doing when you get home from work, um, that side hustle that you're doing to you know, start something that you love, start a small business and turn that into your nine to five. A lot of people, they do the nine to five to pay the bills. But as soon as they can earn enough through their side hustle, they leave that nine to five job that they might find kind of boring or they just don't like. So the celebration of working nights to make a living and pursue a career with meaning sounds innocuous enough, but of course, leave it to far left organizers is how uh, this particular uh, writer identified herself her name is Kim Kelly writing for NBC News she called the ad tone deaf and a rare miscalculation on Parton's part so let's just hear a very short clip of Parton's very problematic ad
4: working five to nine you've got passion and a
3: vision because it's
4: Work and work five to nine nine
1: till dreams come true. All right, so here's what Kim Kelly said. Quote "The gig economy is a wretched alternative to a stable paycheck and proper benefits. In efforts to paint it as a matter of independence or being one's own boss, downplay how hard it is for so many gig workers to make ends meet. It's not fun or empowering to juggle multiple jobs, she wrote. It's an indictment of a system in which people aren't paid fairly and workers are squeezed down to the last drop of energy. (laughs) So, Virginia. (laughs) Even Dolly Parton can't escape the wrath of the woke elite. Um, You know, you really have to understand... This movement that 's happening on the left um, against the gig economy to understand why uh, you know someone would attack an ad like this because. On its surface, this ad is simply celebrating Americans pursuing the American dream, which is to start your own business, do something you love. And the gig economy has enabled so many Americans to do that, whether that's earning extra money on the side, driving for Uber or Lyft or delivering groceries, or whether that's working to start your own business and using Squarespace to develop a website in order um, to promote that business. Uh, but the, there for the past couple of years, there has been a, a serious attack on the gig economy by individuals who really claim the gig economy is oppressive because gig economy jobs, of course, don't are different from traditional jobs in that you know, if you're working a couple hours after you're nine to five, you don't get health care benefits you don't get employment sick protections sick leave and so forth from that job and according uh, you know to these people that is problematic that is oppressive and americans really shouldn't have that option and this really came to uh, came to fruition in the form of a law in california called ab5 which imposed the most significant restrictions in history on independent work. It it forced independent contractors uh, to basically be hired as full-time employees or not work at all. It ra- raised the bar so much and imposed such, uh, such stringent requirements on who is allowed to do independent work that freelancers you know, in creative industries, we're no longer able to get hired, uh, you know, to do independent work for larger companies, uh, because (laughs) those companies would be forced to provide all these benefits, which of course, they can't always afford for, um, you know, individuals who they just want a couple hours of work from here or there. Um, So this is a huge this article is, is is part of a broader attack on the gig economy. And honestly, Virginia, it's, a, it's an attack on capitalism itself, uh, because the whole system of capitalism enables Americans to work hard, work overtime, work after your nine to five, to not just make a living, but pursue your dreams, start a small business, start something new. And these types of laws that the left wants to impose would make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for many Americans to pursue work in the gig economy.
0: Well, and I think quite frankly, it's an attack on freedom because that's what the gig economy does is it opens up more opportunities. It opens up the chance for you as an individual to set your own work hours, to decide really how you want your life to look and to not be Subject to, you know, a big corporation setting your hours for you or telling you what you know you can and can't do with your time. Uh, I honestly, I, I like skimmed the article when you sent it to me, Kelsey, and then I was like, wait a second, <laughs> hold on, I need to like read this really carefully because I'm very confused on how anyone can be so anti people pursuing their dreams, essentially, uh, you know, people having the opportunity to run after their passions on their own time. And to say that that's somehow, you know, oppressive is just so out of touch, I think, with that American spirit of hard work. And, you know, sure that there's not always glamorous at all. Like that is exhausting to, you know, be building up your own business, but there's such reward and there's such beauty in that as well. And that's something that we can in no way diminish. Uh, And, you know, for for all the big corporations out there, that started with someone having a dream and pursuing and probably working crazy late hours at night. And um, so, yeah, I- Great,
1: does anybody think think that Dolly Parton went from you know being raised i believe in a family of 11 she was very poor didn't even have access to books did does anybody think she rose from rags to riches by having a union job with government mandated benefits you know doing the 9 to 5 of course not she got to where she is by pursuing her american dream in her own time she early on in her career she most definitely did not get paid for working those overtime hours, but that was her choice. She had the freedom to do it. And what what a mistake it is to try to take that away from Americans, that fundamental choice of who you wanna work for, how you wanna work, and when you wanna work. And it's important to note that, you know, the vast majority of gig economy workers don't want to be employees. Uh, a poll commissioned by Lyft last year found that 71% of gig economy workers uh, don't want to be traditional employees. And surveys indicate uh, that those who choose to freelance actually have more job satisfaction than those who work as traditional employees. Many of them actually make more working in the gig economy than they would in a traditional job. And so for, for this author to... Tell Americans, you know, it's not fun or empowering to juggle multiple jobs. It's an indictment of a system in which people aren't paid fairly and workers are squeezed to uh, down to the last drop of energy. It's like, who are you to tell me when and how I'm allowed to work? But unfortunately, this threat is real, not just uh, in the form of AB5 in California, but just last week, Virginia the uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives reintroduced a piece of legislation called the PRO Act, protecting the rights to organize. And this legislation would do to the entire country what AB5 did to California. So as much as we want to laugh off this criticism, this attack on Dolly Parton's Squarespace ad, it's something we have to take very seriously if we care about Americans' fundamental freedom to pursue work in the way they choose. Yeah,
0: yeah, it certainly is. And Kelsey, thank you for um, the work that I know you're doing on this issue. You've been so vocal about this for a long time. Um, And so for all of our listeners out there, if you're not following Kelsey on Twitter, be sure to do so because she is a wealth of great information. Uh, But Wow. Okay. Dolly Parton, you're an amazing woman, and we're so glad to celebrate you today and very, very pleased to crown you as our Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: Well, thank you, Virginia. If uh, any of our listeners want to learn more uh, about any of this that we're discussing, you can head to Independent Women's Forum and check out the Chasing Work campaign, where we are sharing personal stories of Individuals in California who, unfortunately, have already lost essential income and even, you know, their American dream because of this legislation. It's something we should take very seriously. But on that note. On the, on the, on the, <laughs> On that unfortunately not a high note Uh, that's going to be it for this week's edition of problematic
0: women please join us next thursday morning for a brand new edition in the meantime
1: please go ahead and subscribe and share conservatives need your support in the podcast world and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on spotify soundcloud apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast it really does make a difference
0: Hope you have a great weekend and a great week, and we'll be back with you all next Thursday.
2: Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.